Well, this is a little different, isn't it? Normally you get me for five minutes at a time with words that somebody else wrote, and now you're stuck with me for an hour. We're gonna go, all right. Well, it's good to be here with you. It's so good to see you all. Uh, If you have a Bible or uh, app on your phone, we will be in the Word. We're gonna be in Colossians 3. We're carrying on where Ezra left off last week, uh, verses 12 through 17. I'll be preaching from the ESV, but you can follow along in whatever version you prefer. The the Colorado Avalanche have arguably been one of the best teams in the the NHL for the last couple of years. They even, oh, we got a fan over there. Yeah, they won the Stanley Cup in the 21-22 season, and a lot of their success has largely been due to the fact that their captain is Nathan McKinnon. He's regarded by many as one of the best players in the world. Uh, If you know anything about him, he's infamous for his leadership. He drives the team. He has a commitment to win. He speaks into the team's diet and their workout routine and how hard they practice and prepare for games. Uh, He refuses to let his teammates practice poorly, eat poorly. Anybody who's going to join the team, if you're traded to the the avalanche, you're going to have to undergo a bit of a cultural realignment to try to fit in with with this team. You're on Nathan McKinnon's team now, right? So imagine that you are a semi-professional hockey player. For some of us, that's a bit of a stretch. For others, not as much. Pretend that you play in a, a, the minor league. So not the NHL, but maybe the AHL, just a level below. Maybe you're playing for the Abbotsford Canucks and they're having the, just the worst season ever. They're losing every single game. So the Colorado Avalanche take notice of you and they decide that they wanna trade for you to have you on their team. So you get traded. You leave your home, maybe you live in Abbotsford, so you go down to Denver, you meet McKinnon, the captain, you meet your teammates. Over the next couple of weeks, you start to get a sense of what the team culture is. You know, how do the teammates interact with each other? How do they practice? What are the strategies that they use? What's their diet? You know, Nathan McKinnon says you're never gonna eat sugar again for the rest of your life. You're like, great. If you, a person who understands, who comprehends the kind of trade that has just been made on their behalf, from the kind of team that they just left to the team that they now join, it's gonna be a little bit easier for them to pick up this, this, these new habits, this new identity, if they fully grasp and understand and are, are grateful for what just happened to them. The more you understand that you have the chance to play with a Stanley Cup contending team, the easier it will be to pick up this new identity of the avalanche, right? Because you were on a really bad team and now you have an incredible opportunity with this new team. And the image in Colossians 3 that Paul uses is, as he's talking about Christians, is kind of like this, right? If, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you've been traded from a really bad team, the domain of darkness. That sounds like the worst kind of team, actually. To the new team, the marvelous kingdom of the sun, of light, right? You have been raised to life with Christ, seated with him. Your life is hidden in him. And now he will say, Paul will say that you need to take off the old jersey. That's what Ezra taught us last week, taking off the old habits of the old team. And we're gonna be putting on the new jersey. You're an avalanche now. You have a new identity We're gonna put on all the cultural and the communal components that come with the new team, right? You've been bought and paid for by the the general manager. You're signed on to the team. 
So again, last week, Ezra walked us through the first half of chapter three of Colossians, where Paul gives what we could describe as a, a negative imperative, essentially a do not, a stop doing this thing. And now what we're gonna see in verses 12 through 13, Paul's gonna take up the positive imperative, right? He's gonna say, here's what you do now. Here's what you put on as a member of the new team. Here's how the new team eats, practices, and lives together. And there's a, there's a really important little gospel nugget here for us that we, we can't miss as we read these passages. Because you know, we often think of salvation as, as being saved from something. And that is true, right? We are saved from the power of sin and death and the power of darkness over us, but we are also saved for good works in community. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for them and into the community of Christ. And the apostle Peter will agree with Paul when he says in his letter to the persecuted church, right? He describes the church as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a holy nation. But then he says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right, just like kind of the thesis statement of Colossians in chapter two, where Paul says in verse six, as you have received, since then you have received Christ, so then walk in him. There is a putting on, a taking of the next steps, a moving into a new life. So what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna argue today is that Christians have been called to Christ-centered community. We're kind of answering the question of what is it that we are saved for? We're finding out how the new team that we've been traded to operates. Christians have been called to Christ-centered community. And this will be the start of a, of a very practical section of Colossians. If the first half of the book is theologizing, right? Now we're gonna to start to get into the really practical stuff, a lot about interpersonal relationships. How do we interact with each other as believers in this new family, community, team, whatever metaphor you wanna use, right? So this week, I get the easy text. I get to preach about love and peace and harmony and singing. And then Freddie has to preach about wives submitting to their husbands next week, so. <laughs> easy, easy. He'll do a much better job than I ever could. Okay, so three practical applications then for a Christ-centered community. This is what we are called to do. Three things. Let love robe you. Let love robe you. Second, let peace rule you. Third, let the word reside in you. Let love robe, let peace rule, let the word reside. Okay, so let's read. Let's get into the text here, 12. Through 17, we'll read the whole thing and then we'll split it up into those three. He says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. I mean, that's the sermon. I can go home, you can go home, we're done. All right, so we spent the last few weeks of the summer in Colossians, and we've, like I said, we've done a lot of theologizing. Who is Jesus? He's the supreme son of God. What has he done for us? What's the new identity that we have received? But now, Paul isn't just concerned with who we are, who Jesus is, what we have. He's concerned about how we act and how we live, right? As you have received Christ, so walk in him. You have a new identity, so act like it. You know, it's like my wife tells me all the time, honey, you're an adult, so act like it. I, 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 you know, I am like my children in so many ways. Not the other way around, right? We have been traded to a team, so we wear a new jersey. All right, let's get practical. So first, let love robe you. If, you could, if we could sum up these first couple of verses, this could be you know, potentially a good header for us. Paul hits us right off the bat with this list of virtues that sounds kind of like the, the fruit of the Spirit, right? He says, put on, wear, robe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, like you're, like you're getting dressed to go out for the day. Right after your morning routine, whatever that may be, you, you get dressed to go out. Nobody leaves their house naked, I would hope. You first need to put on your underwear, right? Some socks, a shirt, maybe a sweater if it's chilly, shorts, pants, all of the things that you need to dress appropriately for the day. Uh, if my son had his way, he would probably leave with as little clothing as possible. I've caught him out in our driveway in his undies, but nobody wants to see that, right? It's an affront to the eyes. He'd be miserable. And uh, we, we as Christ's community need to dress ourselves in the appropriate garments that Christ has given us, the garments of virtue, clothed in compassion, covered in kindness, fitted with forgiveness, robed in love. So look here among us today, just like in the, the Colossian church, there is a great amount of diversity. In Colossae, there were, Paul says in, in verse 11, there were Greeks and Jews, uh, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians and Scythians, slaves and free men, right? So here we have white Mennonites, some German, some Paraguayan. We have Mexicans, we have Kenyans and Nicaraguans and Koreans, and we're all from different socioeconomic classes, and we have different family values and ethnic heritages, it may not always look like it, but there is an incredible amount of diversity here among us. And the cost of unity in this kind of diversity is high, right? We, well, why do I say that? Because, because we all have our own personal preferences and differences. And we come from different families and backgrounds and we think differently and we act a little differently. And it's only gonna be a matter of time until we run into somebody that we inevitably disagree with. If you come into the office and you hear Ezra and Freddie talking at any point, you'll know that that's true. An incredible amount of differences, right? We are going to rub each other the wrong way at some point. The cost of unity in this kind of diversity is high. And God, God has called each one of us from a unique set of circumstances and backgrounds and scenarios into a new community a community of Christ. And we don't always find it easy to put on this kind of clothing. We don't always find it easy to dress ourselves in the, the appropriate garments 
of virtue. When I married my, my now wife, we quickly found out, as anybody who is married will find out, that it, it takes a lot to bring two unique individuals with their own lives together, to live in the same household, to adopt new practices and new habits, to bring two lives together. There's always a few years of right bearing with one another, just like Paul says. There's a few years of complaints levied against each other. There's a few years of learning how to forgive each other and sometimes to let little grievances go. You know, I leave the cheese out on the counter and it gets that little hard crust on it that she has to cut off every time. She somehow loses everything that she owns multiple times a day and comes to me, where's my wallet? Where's my phone? Where are my earphones? Like the third time today, honey. It's great, I love her. Um, but imagine if we, if we never learned to let little things go. Imagine if we held all those little grudges and complaints against each other. Imagine if we never learned to forgive each other. Imagine if I always had to be right and I just couldn't ever admit that I was wrong. What kind of a marriage would that be? That would not be one of two individuals clothed in humility and forgiveness and bearing with one another. Living together in unity with other people involves a great deal of bearing with one another and forgiveness. It requires us to be long-suffering. In some translations, that's how they'll translate bearing with one another, literally suffering long with each other. And what do you think is the correlation between suffering long and forgiveness, right? As Paul says, there's something that connects those two things. Well, recently uh, deceased pastor and author Tim Keller, he said this about forgiveness in one of his sermons. He says, God's grace and forgiveness, while free to the recipient, are always costly for the giver from the earliest parts of the Bible. It was understood that God could not forgive without sacrifice. No one who is seriously wronged can just forgive the perpetrator. But when you forgive, that means you absorb the loss and the debt. You bear it yourself. All forgiveness then is costly. In a sense, forgiveness demands suffering from somebody. And Paul here gives us the motivation to forgive others. He says, because God has forgiven us. And so we ask, well, how did God suffer by forgiving us? I mean, I... He left his throne in heaven, leaving aside eternal comfort and riches to come and wallow in the dust of the earth with his creations. He was spat on, he received lashes, he had nails and spears driven through him, he was killed and buried in a tomb and all of these things doing for us what should have been done to us. It was what we deserved. You know, Christ came to us in Humility, he was gentle and lowly, compassionate to the worst kinds of sinners. And when he was reviled, he did not lash out. So God's forgiveness in Jesus is the model and the motivation for our own. His love is what motivates our love. We love because he first loved us. Paul says we forgive each other because God forgave us. I mean, imagine if God held grudges like we are so good at doing sometimes? 
Wouldn't it be awful to get into a grudge match with God? Aren't you thankful that he doesn't treat us the way that our sins deserve, that he has removed our sins from us as far as the, the east is from the west? Letting love robe us means forgiving because we have been forgiving. It means loving because we have been loved by God. It means having the same attitude towards one another that Christ has towards us. And why does Paul say that that we are to put on love over all these things? Because he says, uh, 14, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There's something about love that makes them all hold together. Well, when you bake a, a cake, when you bake anything really, there is something that is always in the recipe that's, that is a, a binding agent, right? The binding agent in the, in the ingredients is whatever is the thing that helps what you are baking to hold its shape, to look like what it is supposed to look like. A cake without flour is sugar soup. Some of the kids in here are like, I want sugar soup. You know, if, with, if you don't put enough butter in the base of cheesecake, you know, the graham crackers just kind of crumble and fall away into dust. You need something that holds it all together. He's saying without love, all of the virtues fall apart. They are just nice things that we do usually to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Any of them on their own can be self-serving. And he'll say, Paul will say the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13, that anything without love is just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It's just ugly noise. Love is what makes virtue serve God's purposes and not our own. And do you want to know what what virtue signaling is? It's having the, the veneer, the false layer of virtue. You sort of look virtuous on the outside, but you are actually the only one who benefits from it. Love actually makes virtue serve God's purposes and not our own. Because what is love? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 3.16. Love is self-sacrifice as modeled by Jesus. And so living together as a Christ-centered community is going to cost us. It's going to be costly. It's going to cost us time and money and comfort as we care for one another because there's no such thing as patience that doesn't cost time. There is no such thing as compassion that doesn't cost us comfort. There's no such thing as forgiveness that doesn't hurt us a little bit as we absorb a loss and let something go. Just like God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Love binds all of the virtues that we are supposed to be putting on together because it is the foundation of serving others. It is self-sacrifice. Jesus said he came to serve and not to be served. Okay, that's the first one. Christians are called the Christ-centered community, and that means letting love robe us, putting on the garments of virtue, forgiving one another, bearing with one another, and doing it all because Christ has done so for us. Secondly, being part of this community means that you let peace rule you. Paul says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called 
in one body and be thankful. My wife will tell you that I, I'm terrible at keeping peace. I don't know what it is. I just kind of love to instigate, whether it's playing hockey or playing with my kids or my brother-in-law's dog. I just love to push buttons. You know, I've been banned from playing sports with my nephews because I just want to crush them. Get so much satisfaction out of it, right? Peace doesn't always rule my household. Uh, and it does not always rule this household either. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you will know that the church is not unfamiliar to a, a little bit of discord and disagreement, right? I tell people all the time that I'm thankful that I wasn't a worship pastor in the 90s because of the, the worship wars that kind of took over so many of our, our congregations. It's kind of crazy that on, on the same level of division as COVID stuff, right, was the issue of music style and which songs we should be singing and in which ways. You know, at first it was the pre-90s, it was when the organ came in. God forbid that we use anything in church but our voices, the God-given instrument, right? And the organ came in. And then 90s and 2000s, the Willow, the Willow Creek model of church kind of took over and you started to see things like the worship band take over and you had the intro, introduction of drums and guitars, the devil's playthings, right? There has, there has always been something in the life of the church that has um, caused a little bit of disunity and upheaval. There has always been something that threatens to divide us, even something as silly as a style of music. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of the kinds of divisions that arise in, in our church are often based on things that, if we're really honest, things we prefer and things that benefit us in some way, shape, or form. We believe that we're right about X, Y, Z tradition, and it's gonna be a, a cold day in hell when we let something else take place, right? And Paul wasn't unfamiliar with, with divisions in the church either. Even in a newly born church, he is constantly calling the early church to, to peace and unity, and you'll find it in just about every letter he writes to the church, right? There's a, a great rephrasing of this idea in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 1 through 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, right? Sound familiar? Colossians 3. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We've been called to peace. We have been given peace by God in Christ. We've been given peace with each other and with God. And so he says we should be eager to maintain it. Our desire should be at all times in, in every circumstance to ask the question, what kind of decision here would lead us in the unity of the spirit. And actually in, in Colossians 3 here, what the word rule connotes, what it kind of means is more than just like the, the authority of a king. It actually means to, to govern or judge or preside or umpire. Let Jesus's peace be the judge of your hearts. Let your decision-making be governed by his peace. When something would divide you, take it to the courtroom of Christ and hold it up to his word 
and pray, Jesus, how do we keep the unity in this kind of diversity? Sometimes I'll receive emails from congregants who are concerned about the attire or presentation of music team members on stage. I'm gonna get one about Nate wearing shorts. I don't doubt it. You know, it could be ripped jeans or, or wearing a hat or having you know, openly exposed tattoos, you name it. Um, and I'm not gonna stand up here and pretend like we can all agree on what is right or wrong in this kind of setting in that way. We all have different ideas of what is modest or right. But what I have to ask myself when I go to respond to that and when I go to create policies for our teams, what I have to ask is what outcome here would lead to peace? What effort needs to be made by whom to maintain the bond of peace? I can decide to be dogmatic and uh, try to educate and correct the person who I think is wrong. You know, you need to grow in Christian maturity. I could do that. Or I could do what Paul says I should do in Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. And now here, Paul is talking about clean, unclean foods. What is right? What should we eat? What should we not eat? What should we touch? What should we not touch in a Gentile and Jew uh, congregation? But he could have just as well have been talking about any of the issues that we face, right? Any of the traditions that we think are necessary or unnecessary. And so what I have to ask myself is, how easy is it for me to just not wear a hat on stage in an effort not to antagonize my brother or sister in Christ, to keep the peace? It's a, it's a small sacrifice to make, to maintain unity. Maybe I, I, I'm going over to a, a friend's house who is still a little bit germ conscious and they want me to wear a mask, however I may feel about wearing a mask. How easy is it for me to make a, a small accommodation to prefer them and maintain peace, to remove any stumbling block from our relationship, rather than what's good for me, what serves me, how do I get my way now, look, it goes both ways, right? Peace isn't, isn't a one-way street. We're all called to one body and all called to strive for peace. And for some of us, that might mean holding a little more loosely the things that we think are essential to faith that may not be. And I'm not just saying that because I don't want any more emails about ripped jeans or hats, okay? This is just a small example. Love and peace will almost always require sacrifice and accommodation the sacrifice of sometimes our pride or our preference, or maybe even a financial sacrifice. I have a, a friend who told me once about this business deal that he was doing with a few other gentlemen, and they were in his church community. And something about the deal went sideways, and he stood to suffer a significant financial loss. I'm not talking like somebody owed him 20 bucks, like this is you know a million dollars worth of loss. He had the choice to pursue legal action, really go after these guys for everything they, they, they had. And he was frankly probably justified to do so. But at the counsel of a, a, another pastor, he chose to forgive the debt and not enter into what could have been, what probably would have been a, a messy, explosive, hurtful legal situation he chose to robe himself in self-sacrifice to make the accommodation 
He chose to suffer a loss for the prize of letting peace rule. And I'm not saying it's the right answer is always that we lay down and just take it. There are times when injustice needs to be confronted and sin interpersonally needs to be dealt with. But other times wisdom will lead us to turn the other cheek for the sake of our community. I mean, churches have been splitting over the dumbest stuff for so long. So maybe the next time that we find ourselves in a, in a conflict, however big or small it is, we should ask, what can I do in this situation to let peace rule? Is there a sacrifice that I need to make in an effort to maintain the unity? Is there something I can let go to prefer my brother or sister? And that can be a hard question to ask ourselves. But if Jesus gave up the riches of heaven and did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead took on the form of a servant for us, he made the greatest accommodation of all time to achieve peace here between us and between us and God, then surely we can ask ourselves, what can we do to let peace rule? Thirdly, Christians are called the Christ-centered community, and that means letting the word reside in you, right? Let the love robe, let the peace rule, let the word reside. He continues, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, we don't often use that word dwell or dwelling in normal conversation, right? Sometimes we'll think of it when we think of John 1, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us or maybe Revelation 21, when God will come to dwell among his people. But it's, it is a fantastic, a powerful word when we think about the word of Christ living in us. So here is, let's expand the image, right? Let the word of Christ inhabit you in such a way that it fills every nook and cranny and corner of your heart until you explode with wisdom and teaching and singing and thankfulness, let it take up permanent residency within you. Welcome it like a royal resident into your home who's gonna come in and and furnish your house and decorate it right down to the basement all the way up to the attic. There's a reason that here at Northview we emphasize being in the word. There's a reason that we provide men's and women's Bible studies and we have a, a Bible reading plan and we do seminars and classes and courses to teach you how to read your Bible. And when we gather together while we read from God's word and we open it and we study it, because we believe that the Bible is the revelation of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, which ultimately points to and culminates in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And that you cannot fully know God and Jesus whom he sent if you don't learn to know what God has revealed about him in the written word. Furthermore, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And how are we supposed to know what Jesus commanded if we don't look into his word and study it and know it and let it take 
deep roots in us, right? That's why we use that language, deep roots. Let it fill us. And ultimately, what, is the, what does Paul say that the inhabiting or the dwelling of the word lead to? What is it actually, what is it for? Well, he says first that teaching and admonishing in all wisdom. What is that? John Piper says this of wisdom. He says, wisdom is marked by meekness and freedom from selfish ambition and freedom from bitter jealousy and freedom from boasting. In other words, wisdom rises in relationships of meekness and humility and love and servanthood rather than jealousy and selfishness. Wisdom is not a solitary attainment. It is a community or a corporate or a relational attainment. Loners are not wise. Wisdom is given and found and forged in the fires of committed relationships. Basically, wisdom is not being smart so that you can tell other people what to do, right? That's not teaching and admonishing. Teaching and admonishing in all wisdom is gentle and humble correction in community. It's living out the word of Christ in real life unto the goal of maintaining peace and love. And I mean, do you see how, how all of these things kind of work together, right? Teaching and admonishing and wisdom only works when people do it in love to the end of peace. Otherwise, you just become a, a know-it-all who likes to be seen as virtuous. But wisdom in love unto peace guided by the word of Christ, that is the Christ-centered community to which we are called. And furthermore, Paul will say, will say that the word residing in us, inhabiting us, taking up its home in us will lead us to sing in thankfulness to God, right? Because the, the more that the word occupies our hearts, the better we understand what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And the greater, therefore, our thanksgiving will be. A good friend of mine once said that we never grow out of the gospel, we just grow into a deeper understanding of it. We grow into it as we return to the word of Christ regularly. We grow in thanksgiving for what God has done. And that will absolutely move us to sing songs of thanksgiving. Songs are just the natural, emotional outpouring of joy and thanksgiving for what God has done, right? Like just in the movies, when the, the couple falls in love, you know, and they're up on the mountaintop, embracing passionately, and the woman looks across to the sunset, and she's just, oh, you know. The, the emotional outpouring of her love and joy just stirs her to sing. There's something that singing is just intrinsically emotional. It's the outpouring of what we believe and experience and know. When the word of Christ resides in us in our communities, joyful and thankful songs will rise and not only that, our, our songs will, should also be a vehicle of the word of Christ. We should use our songs to, to teach and admonish one another. Singing is emotional, but it's also educational. And that's actually what drove many of the, the early hymn writers. Isaac Watts or Fanny Crosby, Charles Wesley, they, had a, they were motivated to put the word of God and the doctrines of the church on people's lips in a way that they would Remember them. You know, you put it to a catchy tune and people will sing it throughout the week. They say that nobody remembers a sermon that was preached, you know, a day later, but you'll be singing the five songs that we picked the next day. 
which always hurts Mark a lot, (laughs) but he'll be okay. The word of Christ will lead us to sing and it will lead us to teach one another in all wisdom and it will produce thankfulness in our hearts as we return to the gospel. So we let it reside in us. We welcome it in like a, a welcome house guest. I mean, this, this is the community that we as Christians are called to be, one where we are robed in love, always forgiving each other, where we're ruled by peace, where we are eager to maintain the bond of unity that we have been given, and one where the word resides in us individually and as a community, right? Where it leads us to wisdom and thankfulness. And just in case you feel like I've just given you this long laundry list of things to do, you're like, this sounds impossible. I will never be like that. Paul closes the section with this really helpful reminder for us. It's it's absolutely crucial. Verse 17, right? Whatever you do in word or deed, anything, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him? Well, Because there is just no way you can do any of this outside of Christ. Without the model of Jesus, we have nothing to look at as an example. Without his death on the cross, there is no peace. We have no reconciliation with God and with each other. Without his resurrection, there is no new self, which we are called to put on. There is no new community of God. Outside of Jesus, it's impossible. And so we do everything in his name because he has done it for us and we give thanks to the Father through him because all that we are and all that we have been given is in and through Jesus. This is not a list of things to do to be a Christian. Remember our illustration at the start, right? That anybody can do all the exact same things that a member of the Colorado Avalanche does. You can have their diet. You can embrace their workout routine. You can practice just like them five days a week. You can go to center ice and shoot pucks all day long. That doesn't make you a Colorado Avalanche. Doesn't make you a part of the team. What actually makes someone a part of the team is being bought by and traded to the Avalanche, usually at a great price, and being signed by the general manager. When you become a part of the team, you are given a new identity and so now you act like a member of the team. It's what you do. It's, it's just who you are now, right? You don't wear the Abbotsford Canucks jersey to the Colorado Avalanche game. You wear the Avalanche jersey now. You put on the new self. Christians aren't Christians because they do Christian things. The only way that you can receive that identity is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, Amen. So we are called to Christ-centered community because we have been made a part of the team. If, you, if your faith is in Jesus, you have received Christ. And so now we walk in him. Now we, we put on the new self. We put on the, the garments of virtue. And we put on love over top of it all. And we let peace rule us and the, the word reside in us because we have been given a new identity. And that's just who we are now. We don't go back to to who we once were. 
Robe yourself in love. Let his peace rule you. Let his word reside in you and do it all in the name of Jesus unto the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, for this community that you have made of unique individuals. You've called us from all different kinds of families and places and scenarios and settings and and you have given us a new identity in Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you for that. Help us by the power of your spirit each day to, to walk in this new identity, to put on what you have called us to put on, to be the people that you have chosen us and set us apart to be. We need you, Holy Spirit. We need you to help us to do it through Christ unto our heavenly Father. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.